Hi folks, John Curry here for another episode of John Curry's Secure Retirement Podcast. I am excited about today's interview because I'm sitting across the table from a friend that I've known since Rotary days back in the 90s, 1992, I think we both joined Sunrise Rotary Club, John. I'm sitting here with a guy named John Dunwoody. I'm going to ask him to tell you his background in a moment. But today we're going to talk about adventures in travel from the standpoint of you, you work hard, you have goals, you retire. What do you do with your time? And I think you're going to find today's interview to be fascinating just because of the, the things that this man has done and has talked about over the years that I found to be intriguing. So first of all, John, welcome. Thank you, sir. Glad you're with us. We take a moment and tell our listeners who the heck John Dunwoody is. Well, uh, my name is John Dunwoody. I grew up in Miami. Um, went to college as a pharmacist and uh, ran my own business for 10 years. Then went to work for the big guys. And um, basically been in boating my whole life. And I did get my captain's license in 81, I believe. And have had a dream of uh, doing the America's Great Loop um, since high school. Tell us what the Great Loop is, because you first started telling me about this. I was fascinated. So just tell us, what does that encompass? Where, did, where is that? The Great Loop goes, uh, it's a, a, a passage that you can do around the eastern United States, going up the eastern seaboard, going through the Erie Canal, over to Canada, going through the Trent Severn Waterway, down Lake Michigan to Chicago, through the uh, canal system there into the Illinois River, down the Mississippi, up the Ohio, and get on the Tennessee River, which then connects to the Trent Se- the uh, Tom Bigby Waterway, and you end up coming out in Mobile Bay. From there, you can go back to Florida and complete the loop. Amazing. And how long does it take to do this thing? Most people break it up into two seasons. Um you could do it in a year if you if your timing is real good. Um, since I grew up in Florida, I kind of sped through the uh, Florida uh, timeline, so I did it in nine months. Nine months, roughly <clears throat> nine months. Okay, tell us why this was so important for you. Because you set goals that when I retire, these are things I'm going to do, and this was at the top of the list. Uh, well, it seemed to me. Um, when you retire, most of the people that I've known that retire, uh, a lot of them get bored or can't find things to do. And um, I'd had a, this had just been a dream to complete this uh, mission as a, as a something I could check off on my bucket list as something as, a, as an accomplishment to, um, you know, it's like sailing around the world. It's just something that I thought would be an adventure and something interesting and uh, see new places. Well, let's start back at the beginning. So once you determined to do this, and you told me earlier you've been thinking about it since you were a kid, but as an adult, once you decided to do this, walk us through a little bit about what you had to do. Obviously, first you had to get a boat big enough to do what you're doing. So tell us about your boat and how that came to be. Well, uh, I ended up with a 36-foot boat. Um, it's a Grand Banks 36, and I picked that size, that particular model also, just because it was as small of a boat as I could get that had the space that I that I required. I wanted to have enough to have two couples on board, um, needed to have the range of at least 300 miles in order to do this, uh, it needed to be seaworthy enough, and um, we're going to be going at a slow rate. Most of the time we're doing 
six miles to eight miles an hour. So speed was not a, an issue. And um, so, you know, I also checked my pocketbook and to see how much money I had. And um, so I ended up with a, with, with a boat that I'm very happy with. Very good. And what you'll do, you'll use this for a period of time. And then when you get, when you accomplish your traveling, your boating, that's an asset you'll sell. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, when I get tired of the boating thing, I'll probably go back to the RV uh, lifestyle. But, uh, uh, you know, I did the Great Loop. And then the following summer, I went down to uh, the Keys. I went to Dry Tortugas, and I spent a month in the Keys. And uh, brought the boat back up to Mobile. Went on to uh, Chattanooga and up to Knoxville to go to a football game on the river. Um and so I brought the boat back down to Mobile, and it's getting some work on, and hopefully go to the Bahamas this summer. When I get done, when I run out places to go or physically can't move around as much, then I'll uh, sell it and uh, go to the next thing. How much of this did you do while you were still working, or were you totally retired before you started? I, doing I was totally, I, I totally retired before I did this. I'd always had boats, I'd had sailboats and, and motorboats and things like that. But uh, when uh, the day came to retire, I had I knew obviously a few months ahead of time that that I was going to come. But the, the time was here. I started looking for boats, narrowed it down to five, and um, picked this one. I remember meeting with you a few times, and you talking about selecting the boat. Talk a little bit about that because that was that wasn't an easy decision. You had to narrow it down as to what worked best for you. Well, <clears throat> picking out the right boat first, you got to decide how much. You can spend, so you don't waste time looking on things that are just outside your your uh, budget. Um, but things that were important to me was I wanted a full keel to protect the prop and the rudder. I wanted it to be relatively shallow draft, so I have a four-foot draft. That was the high end of what I wanted so I could get into uh, more places. Um, like I said before, I also had to have at least two staterooms so that I could have uh, uh, two couples on the boat without bumping into each other. Um, and the outside area, I wanted to be able, because a lot of the trip I'm by myself, I had to have a boat that I could walk around the boat quickly and get from side to side. So I had to have a walk around boat that I could uh, feel comfortable docking and handling by myself. And, and this particular boat, uh, solved those, you know, uh, met all those requirements and it has a range of about 800 miles. So I, I had plenty of fuel and, um, it's got everything you want. You know, it's air conditioned, showers, and it's got everything you need. Sounds exciting. What's going through my mind as you're explaining that is you had to pay attention to what you really wanted and needed. Can't just be what I want. It's got to be need and want because you may want something, but it's not appropriate once you get out there. So what struck me was you better have a clear picture of what you want in retirement. If, if you want to sit on the front porch and just rock all day, that's one thing. But if you want to travel and do things, what does that look like? And we call that, what is your vision of retirement? What is your vision? So you had to visualize the boat that you wanted. Then you went looking for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, like I said, I've been around boats my whole life. And and, and I had a fairly good idea. And um, I, I, I did look for probably two months. And um made several trips with brokers and went on different boats. And, uh, and I just liked the Grand Banks. Um, it, it, it seemed to meet, meet all the requirements. You can fish off it a little bit. And, um, it, it, 
It was. It was what I wanted. You know, it's, you know, life as a pharmacist, I see a lot of people when they get older um, and they retire, and oftentimes their health goes downhill rapidly. And uh, so I figured I wasn't going to let that happen. I was going to get out and just uh, keep moving and doing the things I could do while it was uh, still within my uh, skill set. What would you say was your primary motivator or motivators to retire when you did? Because you could have kept working longer. Um, I, I think I'm not unlike a lot of people. The world of pharmacy had changed dramatically during my career. It was not um, the, like it was when I got out of school and when I had my own business. It's all um, uh, just healthcare care changed in general. And I no longer enjoyed, uh, I did not enjoy my job at all. In fact, I, 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 I regretted going to work every morning. And when you have that kind of an attitude, it's really time to move on to something else if you can afford to do it. Makes sense. So what advice would you offer anyone who just heard that? And they say, damn, I hate my job, but I don't know that I'm ready to retire. What, what advice would you offer that person who is thinking that way? Well, <clears throat> do the same thing I did. I went down and uh, spoke with a financial advisor and uh, gave him a general outlook of my my lifestyle, what it cost me to live, and, um, and and asked questions if 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 I had enough resources to retire now or did I need to um, stick it out for a few more years or do I need to, you know, and, and if that was the case, what would I have to do in those years to make it as short a time as possible so that I could uh, move on with my life. There's a lesson there, too, folks. Anytime that John and I are talking about his stuff, he's always asking questions. He doesn't, he doesn't just come in and say, everything's just fine, that's great, thank you very much. He's questioning, how about this, how about that? And that's the key, isn't it, John? Constantly yeah. review it. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm like a lot of y'all. Uh, well, the last thing I want to do is run out of money to before, <laughs> before I run out of days. So uh, <laughs> I'm... Uh, Checking with them to make sure that um, I'm on track for a, a, a successful retirement. What are some of the lessons you've learned since you embarked on this traveling? I'm, I'm calling it traveling America's Great Loop. I'm not sure how we'll title this eventually, but but I, that was such a big deal. There's a lot of unknowns. There's got to be lessons you've learned along the way. Share some of those with us. Well. The biggest, and you've heard this from other folks, the biggest thing is um, um, don't get so focused on the go the end goal, uh, like in my case was completing the loop, and I had certain dates. I had to be in certain places so that I could complete this task. Um, it was it was the on the way to completing that task. It's these little things that were unexpected, the people you meet that make it a lot more uh, enjoyable. And uh, it took me a long time to figure out to quit being so uh, uh, goal-oriented or uh, destination-oriented and learn to understand that if I got to a town that I enjoyed and the people were nice, I might be there three or four days or a week versus the one day that I had penciled out as my time to get fuel and water. So um, it took me probably four, five, six months to figure that out. But um, really, it's it's so many good things happen on the way there during your trip if you just slow down and do that. And uh, it's not the end of the world if you don't get to your destination on time. There's always another day. That's valuable information because not just 
with a vacation or a trip like you did, I find that going to conferences, I may go for one particular reason, but a side conversation that I have with someone is more valuable to me than the entire conference. It's being willing and flexible to listen and learn from other people. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, Kevin, my son and I, my son was with me for a large part of the trip, and we went to a little anchorage that wasn't much to the anchorage, and there was four other boats there, and uh, we had uh, two ex-DEAs, we had a bank executive, and a, um, a CEO for a very, had to have been a large company, had an extremely expensive boat, but uh we were there for about four days because of uh, the weather was bad and had an outstanding time. Just And we were all different backgrounds, outstanding time. Describe what you mean by an anchorage. Well, we, we pulled into, this one was in the, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think it was called the Berry Islands there in uh, Georgian Bay. Um, it's just a protected area. The winds were coming up and we knew it was going to, front was coming through and it was going to be ugly for about four days. So several boats pulled into this little deep water harbor. And uh, just anchored out, you're not far apart from each other, so you're going to see each other in the dinghies. And uh, (laughs) we ended up going out there every night about 5 o'clock. We'd all get in our little dinghies and meet up in the middle and have drinks. And just, you know, one night we had a little cookout of hot dogs on the beach. We were all running out of food because we had not planned to be – we were all planning, like me, to be at the next place on a certain date. So we were – Scrapping what we could from each boat, but uh, turned out to be a uh, one of the highlights of the trip. Those uh, four days we spent there. Have you kept in touch with some of these folks that you've met along the way? Um, many of them. Uh, one of the things I've joined a group that uh, gave me some hints about how to do this and prepare. And uh, they said, "We'll get some cards, some boat cards made up." So we did that, and I probably have three hundred boat cards that I met from people on the way, and the ones that. Um, I spent more time with and enjoyed. We do talk. We send emails back and forth. I did this, what, two years ago. And when I was in Mobile here, uh, I had a couple of boats come by. They saw mine. They called me up. We went to dinner. I hadn't seen them in, since we were up in Canada. Wow. But we, uh, yeah, so we'll we'll run into each other. Keep running into, you go end up seeing each other at different places, but it's, it's, it's a kind of a small community. Is a boat card just like a business card? Yeah, just a business card. Okay. But everybody's got them, and uh, it's, it's kind of helpful. Nobody can remember anyone's name, but everyone remembers what boat you had and what the boat name is. We're, we're pretty good about that, not so good on the the names. That's cool. So instead of your name, well, actually, the name's there too, I'm sure, but it's the boat name primarily than your name below it or something? Yeah. And, like, my boat is called Gump Stump, but everyone just calls me Stump. No one calls me John or Dunwoody. <laughs> they just call me Stump. Hey, Stump. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, some of the names are clever. Um, and, you know, so uh, it, it's, it's, it's a fun time, fun time. The closest I can relate to that is when a, a few trips I took with my motorhome. You pull into an RV park. If you raise the hood, check in the oil, half a dozen people come in and check on you, making sure you're okay. Everybody looked out for each other. Yeah, it's it, it very, very helpful. Um, uh, it, it, everyone was, was great. Uh I never had any really bad experiences with with anybody. Um, you know, some folks you get along with better than others, but I, I didn't have a negative experience on the trip. Tell us about some of the challenges you've had along the way. Some, I know something had to break down at the inopportune in, in time, things like that, because so, that's just mechanics. Uh, 
my, the first thing that happened uh, when my son and I left St. Mark's and went to Tampa, that's, our own, that's the longest crossing in the entire loop. It's 140 miles, and that's the longest uh, open water you've got on the entire journey. Um, I had a uh, alternator must not have been working correctly, and all my electronics went out all my life. Everything was battery. Everything's dead. And we're out there in the middle of the Gulf, and uh, that, so that was that was unpleasant. Uh, we did manage to uh, get to you know get into Clearwater and figure out the problem, but that was ugly. And I guess the worst, the other thing that happened as bad is I had a uh, water pump belt break in a channel, um, so I ended up anchoring in the channel, and that was not not a pleasant time. Um, got a lot of a lot of horns honked at me at that. <laughs> get out of the way. Did you ever have anything happen where you were worried about your safety along the way? No, um, John, th- th- this trip, like I, ju- I just said, the only open water you have is from basically Dog Island and the Panhandle to Clearwater. And it's roughly 140 miles. Other than that, you're always in the sight of land. I could basically swim to shore from wherever we were the rest of the trip. So I never was. It's not like you're going across an ocean or you're out in the Bahamas in the middle of nowhere. Um, you're, you're, you're close to shore coming down Lake Michigan, which can get very rough. You're only uh, 30 miles to a harbor. So if each harbor is 30 miles and you can see shore, but if each harbor is 30 miles, you're only 15 miles from getting back from, so you just pick your weather. But uh, no, it's not, I really didn't have that big deal. You always close enough to get towed in. You can get towing services and all that. So it's it's a lot safer than uh, making an ocean crossing. Even a short one to the Bahamas is much da- more dangerous than this trip. While we were having lunch, <clears throat> you mentioned some things about seeing so much of our country by doing this because you would take time and go into small towns and visit Tell us a little bit more about that. What, what stands out as some of the memorable places that you've seen? Uh, you told us about the people. What about some of the places? Well, almost every town that we <laughs> in early America was built on a river. And so during this journey, you would pull into uh, a little town you've never heard of or didn't remember the name. And invariably walking through those towns, you would find out that uh, Lewis and Clark was there or... Uh, there was a, a Revolutionary War fought there. Um, uh, the um, and then once you hit the Tennessee River, there was many many Civil War battles and stuff. Uh, just but every town you went in, there was something that you remember from your elementary and junior high school history books. Uh, uh, in in Alabama, there was uh, the Helen Keller House, and um, it just it's just amazing how much. History, you'll see that Trail of Tears was uh, all through the Alabama. There were several uh, uh, things about that, and I learned quite a bit more about that than, than what I had known from the school books. Um, and it, so it's very interesting. Um, the river boats that first um, would come down from the Chattanooga area and stuff, when they would load them on the boats, they would go down the Tennessee River to the Ohio and down the Mississippi out to New Orleans and all those crews would walk back to Chattanooga hmm. and it's called the Nastus I don't say that word right but the, the trace the uh, right. 
magistrates? Yes. And, uh, but they would walk back, and they had just gotten paid in New Orleans, and I found out that was a very dangerous trip from there back up to take the next boat down because all the bandits and Indians yeah. that uh, knew that that's when they had the monies because they were coming, they had just gotten paid, and they're all working their way back up to take the next boat down. That's interesting. So I never thought of that. And, and I've been on a couple of riverboat cruises, and I love it, the paddle boats. It's just fascinating. But I never thought of that because they had to, didn't they? Because they had to come down, walk back. And a lot of those boats, these were not the powered ones. They just a lot of just a bunch of logs thrown together. They load the cargo on it and float down the river. Yeah. They get to the end. They walk back home. Wow. You mentioned earlier, and I, I can't remember the details now, you said something about Someone in your family that was a general yes. in the Civil War. Yes. And then you went to visit this little place. Tell us about that. Well, I'd gone to uh, uh, I'd gone to this town where I'd, I'd followed several of his battles. And uh, he was at Shiloh and up in Chattanooga and, and some other battles. And at the end of the war, when Lee surrendered, he gathered his troops. And I, th- I think the town in the small town of Gainesville, I believe that is the name of it. In, uh, in Alabama and surrendered. And I could never figure out why he surrendered in such a podunk town when I went there to visit it. I mean, he just had a stop sign and started reading the, uh, the little plaque they had there just about the town, not about his speech. But at the time, it was the third largest city in Alabama because that's as far up the Mobile River that the steamships could get. So all the uh, cotton and everything else that they were trying to ship out, either before the war or just after, would have to go through this town. They'd load it up and ship it out. Um, but when the rail systems and all that came about, the, the town just basically disappeared. Just died. Yeah. And also when they put the dams in, when they started locking uh, the Black River, they could get farther up closer to Tuscaloosa, and that probably hurt it also. Yeah. What other uh, stories or places or floating around in your mind that you, you'll share with us. I, I, I just find this fascinating. Well, I mean, you know, just the easy the easy ones. When I was in Alton, Illinois, Illinois, they had a statue about the Lewis, uh, the Lincoln Douglas debates, and I had forgotten all about that. Um, several of the towns had Lewis and Clark had been there. Up in New York on the um, Erie Canal, there was a lot of uh, uh, references to the Revolutionary War when they were trying to come down from up north where they had to cross different rivers. And at that time, it obviously wasn't a canal, but the canal replaced the river in certain parts. And they had all these, this is where, you know, General so-and-such crossed the river and they had the different forts that uh, uh, were there that had to be conquered. And so they were all ones that I vaguely remembered, but had forgotten about. So you got to really live a lot of our American history, didn't you? Yeah, I think so. I, thought, I was extremely interested. Went by West Point, and uh, you know, which was very, very moving to me. I thought that was impressive. I anchored two days by the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Um, just, wow. just uh, <clears throat> had a great time. So, so you literally anchored right there in the harbor. You could have hit, you could have, you could have hit a golf ball from my boat to the, the statue. Was, I was there in October, and every time I go in the, the hotel I was at, it had a beautiful view of the Statue of Liberty. Every time I go, I'm just fascinated by that. That's amazing. Yeah, it was uh, um, it was interesting. Uh, New York Harbor is an interesting place. Um, you know, a lot of traffic. Um, very, uh, very busy place. 
very busy place. My son and I went up and we stayed at the uh, 79th Street uh, Marina and uh, walked around Central Park for two days. Um, had a great time. It was very, 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 very interesting. What's next on the agenda? You mentioned Bahamas. I hope to go to the Bahamas this year if I can get some uh, work completed uh, on the boat in time. Um, you, my insurance makes me be north of uh, North Carolina in during hurricane season, so if I can get the boat done in time, then I'll go to the Bahamas, take the boat up north. Wait a minute. Say that again. Your insurance does what? It makes me be north of North Carolina during hurricane season. Interesting. If, uh, if I'm south of that and I get any damage to a named storm, they won't cover it. So I never I still, heard of I still, yeah, I still, well, about. So you got about, all but north if yeah, it gets bad it's, weather. It's, it's, it cuts about your insurance about half. So if you stay down, if you don't do that and you stay down, then your premiums are about double. So the risk you take is if you don't do it, then you're not covered. Right. So you just plan ahead. So um, that's why. And, and when people do the Great Loop, they generally try to get the general guideline is you want to be in New York on June 1st to start that trip so you can spend all the time up in Canada and all that kind of stuff. And they don't open the Erie Canal until about that time. Is that because of weather or because of the season of hurricanes? Well, no, well the Erie Canal the, the Erie Canal has to do with uh, snow melt and everything, or rains and the wet seasons up there or whatever, uh, but they don't even open the Erie Canal until late, late May, June. It's their time frame. But I want to be in June up there because of my insurance policy. I need to be at least in Virginia. Sure. But if you're going to do this trip, you don't really want to get up there much before June because it's cold. It's cold. So June, that seems to be the time when everyone starts gathering around in Norfolk or New York and starts getting ready to to migrate through, through the um, Erie Canal and through Canada, and we just kind of go in groups. You'll see a person for a couple of weeks. You might They might see them every night, and then you might not see them for a month, and then you'll see them back in Chicago. And everyone ends up in Chicago. By the end of August, certainly by the end of September, everyone has gone through Chicago, and you're on your way down to Illinois. It starts getting nippy. Yeah, because so of the cold weather coming. Start, they start heading south, and then you want to be um, – Really, if you did it and you wanted the best weather days and the best everything, by by December, you want to be moving out of Mobile and, and heading south because the fronts, more and more fronts come through closer together and your days to make that crossing from Dog Island to, to Clearwater start shortening. Uh, just the other day, I read they're supposed to have 12-foot seas out there. Ooh. So. That'd be rough. Yeah. So you just, you just have to watch that. Tell us about that. What was the worst weather you had? On your journey. Um, when we went, my son and I, we left, um, we went, uh, we skipped, left the intercoastal waterway at St. Simons, Georgia, and went outside all the way up to Cape Fear. And we got caught in a bad storm off Cape Fear, uh, tornadoes and all that stuff. And it was, my son had never been in a bad storm out there. And, uh, it was a, uh, a new experience for him, but it was, it was kind of scary. It was, it was bad. And I guess, what else I left out is this trip, there is an intercoastal waterway all the way up the East Coast. So on the East Coast of Florida to, to New York, you never have to go outside into the ocean. You can do that whole trip mm. inside. And when you come out Mobile, in uh, Mobile to Dog Island, you can be inside on bays and canals the entire time, never have to go in the ocean. 
So it's just from Dog Island to Clearwater. And from Clearwater all the way down to Fort Myers, you can go inside, never have to go outside. And then they go across the canal from uh, Fort Myers to Stewart through uh, Lake Okeechobee. And they did this during World War II because of this. The German subs could sink our stuff and the army wanted to have a way to move uh, barges up and down. So they dug this thing. It's supposed to be eight feet deep and so wide. It's run down now. But basically, that's why it was built. Panhandle of Florida is so shallow you can't get subs in there. So they didn't worry about this. Fascinating. Didn't know that, did you? No, I did not. Every, every time I'm with you, I learn something. I, 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 a while back, I said, we've got to interview you for the podcast. Now, let's talk about some takeaways here. Because we're at about 28 minutes. We'd like oh, to keep sorry. these around 30 to 35 minutes. we got plenty of time. <clears throat> so some of the things that went through my mind that I think I can apply in my world is I'm, I'm not a boater. I don't really care so much about boating. But some of the takeaways are, no matter what I want to do, Maybe it's going fishing or hunting or spending time on a vacation. Is you had to number one determine what you wanted. You had a passion for it, big time passion. You're obsessed with it. Then you started putting all the pieces together. Everything from okay, when do I retire? Do I have the money in the right places to to support me for cash if I need this, income for that? So you you had a roadmap, if you will, and you started planning and thinking it through. And then you had certain things that had to be done at a certain time, like being at a certain location because of either insurance or weather. So for me, the takeaway is how do you coordinate all these pieces of the puzzle when it comes to retirement? And I say over and over, it's not just about the money. You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have time to spend the money and do the things you want to do, what good is the money? Likewise, you have plenty of time but no money. What good is that? So you got to have time, freedom, and money freedom. But you got to have something in mind that you want to do. And instead of sitting on your butt watching TV all day, that's what you've done. You've you found things to do. And you're, you're living the life you want to live on your terms. And that's the key. Yeah. we met, There was a financial, I mean, uh, net worth on the people I met on the boat ranged from not very much to people that had a lot and it didn't matter. We're all anchored out there and we're just having a good time. And we had uh, several people that were on small sailboats with outboard motors doing this thing. Uh, it's a little more roughing it than I want to do, but <laughs> you know, they were, they were fine. Uh, there was a couple of couples that uh, an elderly gentleman, he had to be 85 and his wife and they had a little uh, outboard boat and uh, they're perfectly content. And uh, you know, you, you know, the bigger boats are just bigger problems. And if you don't have the resources to maintain all that stuff, you'll spend every cent you've got just doing that. So it doesn't matter. Get Cover the safety needs. Get something that can do it. And then so you might have to rough it a little more than what you want. But it's not not the that's a small part of the whole deal. It's very small. Um, my boat is uh Certainly not one of the best that, that, that are on it, but it more than suits my needs. Um, and, and you just don't, you know, pick something you can afford to keep up, maintain, and use so you're not worried about, oh, it's going to cost this much. So make sure you get something small enough that you can afford to uh, journey instead of being stuck at the dock. Right. And I also remember early on, you, you shared with me, I'm going to use this for two or three years, then I'll sell it. 
and recoup some of the cost. So you plan to head that way. That yeah, yeah. Hopefully that'll uh, that, that you know. Um, like I said, it's not something getting down in the engine room sometimes a little tough and stuff like this. And I can't see doing this at, when I'm 75, uh, not with this boat. So uh, I would have to uh, downsize again and um, go that route if I keep want to keep doing it. Uh, but at that time, uh, I'll worry about that when the time comes. John, closing thoughts. Anything that you would offer as advice on any topic, whether it be planning for retirement or anything at all to our listeners? Anything at all? No, except, uh, like I said, uh, being a pharmacist, I saw so many people that would, uh, they quit work, their motivation would stop, and you just see them deteriorate uh, rapidly because they did not, they seemed not to have anything else in their life that they enjoyed. Work was everything. Um, you know, if that's your case, you need to keep working. But if, you, if you're going to retire and you're going to want to enjoy your retirement, you need to have something you can be involved in. It could be volunteer work. It could be working your garden. It doesn't matter what it is, but you better have something that you can do that occupies your time and you enjoy or you just, you just, you're going to go downhill rapidly, rapidly. Talk about the mental and the physical side of being retired. you got the financial side that you're retired but the the mind and the body need to be kept active. So, do you feel like the things that you've been doing has done that for you as far as keeping the mind active and the body? Yeah, I do. I mean, because every day on a boat, believe me, something breaks. <laughs> every day, something breaks, or you have a navigation issue, or you have um, uh, docking or like going up and down the rivers you have the barges coming at you and you need to get on this side or that you need to think so there was never any it's not it, it was it, always having to, to come up with solutions when you're out there anchored and, and something breaks uh, you need to have a if you don't have a backup you got to come up with something and um I'm gonna call you MacGyver. Yeah, and, and so you know you, you, there was always there was always something as far as physical um at least on my boat, I mean, I'm going up and down the stairs a lot. I, I actually lost weight on uh, going up the East Coast. I actually lost weight on this trip because I did go out in the ocean often, and it was rough, and you'd walk in. It's amazing how many calories you can burn if you're out there in waves and you're going back and forth. Uh, when I got on the lakes, I gained a little because there weren't any waves to fight it. But but you stay, you stay active. You know, you're, you're, you know, we had our dinghy. You're, you're launching a dinghy. You're hiking. You're taking uh, shore excursions. So um, I did not really find where lack of physical activity or mental activity was, was ever an issue. You're always trying to think and plan something. So there wasn't any – it wasn't like you're at home and there's you're just watching TV. There's always something that's got to be done, always. Part of the, what I study and work on in retirement planning – has nothing to do with money. It's about longevity. Okay, I'm, I just turned 66 on December 9th. But what if I live to be 86, 96? What if I live to be 100? You know, I need to make sure that the brain is sharp and I have the flexibility, the strength to do things. So I'm experimenting with things and have semi-retirement. I hope I never fully retire. As long as I'm healthy and can work with people and people want me, I don't want to fully retire. However, I want more time off. I want to do things that I want to go do. It would be martial arts, dance lessons, whatever. Do things that I want to do. And the way you have to do that is determine what it is you want, plan for it, 
Because if you say, well, I'm going to wait till I retire and do it, hell, most people don't do it. That's true. They don't do it. And then they wait until they're, they're unable to do things physically. They're worn out. And you know, so many people come in here, talk with us, that have retired and do nothing. They're the most miserable people that we see. The ones that are busy doing things like you talked about, they're happy. They're, they're, they're fun to be around. Yes. They're not sour. You know? You see, you, you know, I have friends that um, all mine stay pretty active, but the ones that, that, that don't, and they, and if you just, you, like you said, they just have no interest. Uh, everything everything is um, negative. I mean, I'll bet you moan about the boat, but at the end of the day, um, I enjoy it. It's a project for you. It is. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I uh, always enjoy visiting my friend, John Dunwoody. John, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing. If you would like to know more about John Curry services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Chartered Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities, products, and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Financial Representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances, not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Copyright 2005 through 2018. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are their own.